welcome to our continuing 2018 educational webinar series. I am Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliant management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Sean McKenna of Greenbird Trowick and Mike McCarthy of Cooper Health System presenting Trend Spotting, False Claims Act Enforcement in Healthcare. Sean McKenna focuses his practice on healthcare enforcement and regulatory issues representing individuals and providers under civil or administrative investigation by the Department of Justice, offices of Inspector General, and Attorneys General Medicaid Fraud Control Units, as well as in criminal investigations and matters involving the United States and State Attorneys General. Sean's areas of concentration include False Claims Act Quitom, defense of government investigations including criminal and white-collar matters, healthcare litigation, and regulatory issues. As former 10-year Assistant United States Attorney General, Associate Counsel to the Inspector General, and General Counsel to the United States Department of Health and Human Services, Sean focuses his practice on matters involving the healthcare industry and regular, regularly represents clients before Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial contractors. Sean's work includes assisting clients with internal investigations and compliance reviews, as well as advising on compliance with state and federal fraud and abuse rules. He is a frequently invited speaker at national, regional, and local conferences. Michael J. McCarthy is an Associate General Counsel for the Cooper Health System in Camden, New Jersey. Mr. McCarthy primarily advises Cooper on compliance issues, privacy, business transactions, and the 340B drug discount program. Cooper University Health Healthcare is the leading provider of comprehensive health services, medical education, and clinical research in southern New Jersey. Before joining Cooper, Mr. McCarthy was an assistant United States attorney in the Northern District of Texas, where he was a member of the Dallas Medicare Strike Force. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions in the question box of your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM CEU certificate will be emailed to you from PACOM following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Michael, Sean, go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Catherine, and uh, welcome everybody and appreciate you listening to this presentation. Uh, Mike and I have known each other for many years, worked together as federal prosecutors, and we're going to give you an overview of kind of healthcare fraud uh, enforcement activity recently and in 2018. And as we go to the overview, we're going to talk about some of the government agencies and procedures and responding and conducting um, internal investigations and responding to inquiries from law enforcement. And then we'll have time for a few questions at the end. So let's talk about the enforcement agenda and then go to the next slide. Right now, the current administration has, up until recently, been relatively silent in the area of healthcare fraud, except for the fact that they express interest in continuing to bring individuals and, and corporate executives accused of fraud uh, in civil and criminal administrative cases. But, Mike, as we'll talk about in the next few slides, that that has somewhat changed in the last few days when there's been some groundbreaking memorandums released by the U.S. Department of Justice involving uh, kind of new, I guess, procedures or at least philosophies involving the prosecution in healthcare cases. Yeah, that's right, Sean. I think that, um, you know, if you were to ask the government, the, they would say, well, not, nothing's changed. But as you'll see when we discuss these uh, memoranda, um, that's potentially not true. Uh, there's, some, there's, there's reason to believe that um, in 2018, we will see um, a departure from what uh, the previous enforcement scheme has looked like. Right. In fact, several months ago, the Deputy Attorney General 
spoke to a industry group and talked about how they would be reevaluating some of the procedures and tightening them. And so rather than bring, you know, informal guidance, they want to go bring back to the statutory and the regulatory law, which has the force and effect of law. And that's referenced in the Grandstand and Brand memos, as we'll discuss. So let's talk about the enforcement outlook in 2018. Uh, still problematic in the sense that there's budgetary shortfalls, which means an increased focus on trying to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, the perception, at least from the public or the media, is that fraud is rampant. And every time there's a large case uh, brought by either a civil or criminal restitution or a civil key TAM case, whistleblower case, uh, and then that kind of reinforces that perception. The kind of trend I've noticed, Mike, and maybe you've seen this as well, is that the commercial payers are becoming extremely aggressive in attempting to collect and ensure medical necessity and that there's no physician inducement in the referrals. And I've seen that in my practice. And I guess from a hospital perspective, have you seen a tightening up on that side as well? Yeah. So um, laboratories, I think it's maybe laboratory testing is one good sort of area there uh, where you've seen a lot of action by um, private payers. Um, you know, it's for labs, it's tough because of capitation. And um, there are some bad actors out there. There were some bad actors out there. And there have been some pretty big um, decisions and lawsuits um, that were not initiated by the government. They were initiated by the payers. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen some of the largest commercial payers as they continue to consolidate and become essentially providers themselves, which yeah. presents some awkwardness as well on both sides of the house. But uh, they have increasingly gone after medical necessity, both the federal and these commercial payers, but also... You know, they've been using very aggressive tactics, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we get to the agencies as well. I think also some of the trends that we're seeing is the increased and continued use of data analytics to kind of find and identify those outliers, especially as you pointed out in certain ancillary spaces, uh, as well as so any hospital systems utilizing those outside resources. And there's still the continuing focus on individual actors, but we'll talk about that, how it might be changed here in a little bit. And then let's go to the next slide, Mike. The enforcement outlook continued. Uh, the OIG work plan that was recently issued for kind of the next fiscal year, I guess 2018, uh, talks about, you know, the standard issues, the E&M and upcoding and everything that has been going on for probably the last 20, 25 years and since the inception of these plans. But we're also talking about there's increased focus on telehealth services and I think the opioid issue, Mike, and you've been seeing it probably in, in a and essentially a public nonprofit hospital setting in New Jersey, that's become a huge issue, especially for physicians and pharmacies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start off with the fact that um, it uh, puts a huge strain on hospital resources, um, dealing with um, opioid overdoses, um, and Narcan has saved a lot of lives, but a lot of these people are administered Narcan and they just end up, you know, right back um, in your emergency department. Um, so you know that that's going to be um, something that's so high visible as opioid um, abuse is going to be part of the OIG's work plan, which is updated frequently, but um, you're going to see that throughout the whole year. Um, and, to advance to the next slide. Right. Yeah. Um, Mike, talk to us you, about kind of what President Trump has announced, kind of your understanding of what that means. Well, opioid crisis, I think, is something that everyone would agree is, is going on. But when the president does it, um, it means that you're going to see a lot of resources devoted to um, opioid treatment, um, cracking down on um, opioids at a street level. Um, here in New Jersey, what that has meant is uh, so, something that was actually presaged by Governor Christie um, focusing on this at the tail end of his administration. And it's not, there's not a ton of increased enforcement except to say that it's even more visible than ever and they have more money to, to enforce it. Um, 
there's a lot of uh, focus on treatment facilities um, and especially the fraud um, that has gone on with uh, treatment facilities that were nothing but sham uh, facilities. Right. And I think you've seen some of those lawsuits in Florida um, and some prosecutions for that. Um, but that is really just the tip of the iceberg when you talk about patients who are literally being moved all around the country um, and just shipped from fraudulent um, facility to fraudulent facility. So I think in 2018, you're going to see the um, those prosecutions sort of bear fruit and become real cases. And uh, I think they're going to be um, a new feature to the enforcement landscape in 2018. Right, Mike. I mean, I know in Texas and South Florida, the so-called sober treatment facilities have been under scrutiny uh, for, especially because they, they utilize, you know, the urine toxicology testing and some other pharmacological studies and, and issues. But there's also the allegations of collecting or, or monetization of patients almost and using gift yep. cards to attract uh, those types of individuals. So you're right. I do see those kind of, and those are mostly criminal cases because uh, I think a lot of the commercial payers have caught on and not necessarily Medicare or Medicaid. But let's go to the next slide, uh, talk about recent DOJ activity. And then you know, right now, I, I mean, I, you were part of the Medicare strike force back almost in its inception in Dallas back yep. in 2008, 10 years ago now. And it's continued to be a huge uh, initiative for the Department of Justice. We've seen it spread across the country in the so-called high fraud areas and an increased uh, That's right. There's, um, I think wherever you see um, a strike force, wherever there's been a strike force city, um, there is going to be a lot of uh, enforcement activity. Uh, South Florida is an example, Brooklyn. Um, wherever there is a strike force, uh, there will be an increase in, in indictments and increase in enforcement actions. Um, I want to highlight the last bullet point here the number of KETAM lawsuits, um, it goes up and up basically starting from 2015. Um, and there's some consequences for that as we're gonna see in the next slide or the next uh, the slide after this next one. And the problem is as these KETAM lawsuits have increased in number, the Justice Department has not increased the amount of resources available to deal with them. But before we go into the implications of that, let's talk about the Yates Memorandum. Um, it was issued September 9th, 2015, um, and officially titled Individual Accountability for Corporate Wrongdoing. Um, and like probably the next two memorandums that we're gonna take a look at, the official uh, Washington, if you will, uh, stance on this is, listen, this has always been here. We're just sort of bringing it front and center for you. Um, really, in, you know, that hasn't quite been the case because ever since the Yates Memorandum, um, individual accountability has been a feature of negotiations. Um, and you have just seen pure numbers um, from a pure numbers perspective, the amount of individuals um, being a part of False Claims Act actions increase. It just wasn't all that common that you would see hospital executives, for example, be part of a False Claims Act settlement or executives uh, or uh, members of a practice group instead of the practice group itself. But that's something that's becoming more and more common. One, Got it. You, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that obviously DOJ has continued to recover billions of dollars, and the slide I think speaks for itself. But one thing, Mike, is you know that most of these cases and the recoveries, the big ones anyhow, arise from uh, so-called whistleblower suits under the False Claims Act, KETAM suits. And so we're not really going to address the statutes or talk about those types of cases, but just know that they are prevalent and they do drive both the criminal and then also administratively, because let's not forget about the administrative agencies and their administrative remedies, exclusion, et cetera. All right. 
Right. So, so when it, what, Sean, in talking about the Yates Memorandum, um, when when you we're entering into settlement negotiations with the government, um, is it common that the government will leverage uh, sort of individual accountability in order to get to all they offer cooperation to large providers and, and, and try and sort of extract information about individuals? I think that's a fair statement. I mean, I'm sure DOJ would not use the term leverage, Mike, but I do believe that essentially that's what it is. They're focused on the corporate entity. And years ago, when I handled these cases, and I was, you know, did these for 10 years, uh, civil and criminal cases, but normally you would have the company would pay a fine, and that was the perception. And I think this is the H memorandum is exactly kind of a a reaction from the prior administration to the financial crisis where no one was criminally held accountable. So, okay, let's focus on those individuals. So now the H memorandum essentially says that for a company to not be charged or get cooperation credit, whatever that means, then they have to essentially provide information regarding the individuals because in the individuals by essentially buying the company and they're the ones who are the quote, the wrongful actors. And the perception has been that these individual executives have not been held accountable. So we have a shift in 2015 to focus not only on the corporate entities for paying a fine, et cetera, but also focusing on criminal or administrative or even civil recoveries against executives, which presents a very awkward ethical issue for defense counsel because your longtime client can be a CEO of a hospital system like you, Mike, or deputy general counsel or whoever. And then all of a sudden you've got to say, well, I have a conflict now because I represent the company and I have to get you spin off counsel. And I really think this has slowed down the resolution of some of these cases from DOJ as they sit and linger or refer administratively individuals out. Mike, why don't you talk to us about the Granston memo that came out recently? Yeah, this is the next uh, memorandum that we're going to discuss. This is, I guess, leaked, um, but the memo itself was dated January 10th, 2018 and was written by Michael Granston, who's the director of the DOJ Commercial Litigation Branch. And this memorandum was addressed to all AUSAs handling uh, false claims act cases at all the U.S. Attorney's offices in the country. Um, and it addressed uh, dismissal of uh, KTM lawsuits under Section 3730 C2A, which is not new. It's it's not like this is some this was added. It was more um, a exhortation, I guess, to these AUSAs to be more aggressive about using 3730 C2A to dismiss certain key TAMs. Um, and I think a lot of this turns out to be common sense once you look at the effect of the increase of key TAMs filed on the Department of Justice, as I alluded to earlier. Because um, you got to realize if once, you know, if DOJ sort of determines that a, a key TAM is frivolous or they want to decline, they decline to intervene for some other reason, they still bear, potentially bear some burden in terms of resources. Um, they also will, uh, DOJ runs the risk of an adverse decision um, in a case that they're, they didn't participate in. So it's, um, there's a risk there as well. And in the memorandum, um, Mr. Granston identified seven factors, the Granston factors, um, and they kind of allude to what I was just talking about. Um, curbing meritless key TAMs. Just in general, um, you know, the government should be serving as a gatekeeper for these because, after all, they're brought on behalf of the government, standing in the shoes of the government. So the Department of Justice really should bear some responsibility for um, getting rid of meritless key TAMs. Um, and yeah, sort of saying, right. Go ahead. Mike, what I was going to say is that you're absolutely right. I, you know, I handled a bunch of cases that maybe not frivolous, but just couldn't be proved and, or just wasn't there. And so rather than simply declining it or because the court had cut the time period for the government to investigate off at some period of time, 
the government increasingly has been following these not intervening at these times, which are essentially treated as a declination. And the courts are frowning on that. So I think this memorandum is a response to that. Not only the lack of resources in monitoring these declined or not intervened cases, which potentially creates bad law that does bind DOJ, which that's why they file statements of interest, amicus briefs, et cetera, but ultimately trying to resolve and get rid of those cases because it's fundamentally unfair if the government thinks there's no case here, then the relator, you know, shouldn't have to be go forward. Now, that's frankly from you know, contrary position is uh, statutorily contraindicated because it expressly, the FCA expressly allows relators to go forward. And Senator Grassley, who still sits on the Judiciary Committee, has been a champion of the False Claims Act amendments and whistleblowers in general. So this is a, a market departure. And I was at the conference when Granston made these alleged remarks, which then were retracted by the Department of Justice and now issued in a leaked memorandum, which I think everybody has a copy of at this point. All you have to do is go online and search for it. But I do think, you know, this is a market trend and gives DOJ some leverage because there have been these increased litigations or if the government continues to investigate but hasn't intervened and you have to enforce actual litigation. So it presents a tremendous financial and resource intensive burden on providers and defendants in these cases. Right. And from the perspective of um, a provider, it's a relief, you know, just the discovery process alone, um, even for a meritless claim that will likely, um, you know, be dismissed. Um, it still costs a lot of money. And, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the e-discovery alone to produce search terms, even for emails, you know, or an active litigation is, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially, depending on the size of the provider. So I do think that's a fair point. But, Mike, why don't we move on to the brand memo? And why don't you tell us a little bit about this? This just came out, I believe, in the last several weeks and it's getting a lot of press as of late. Exactly. January 25th, 2018. And to quote from the memo, um, I think one of the, the most important pieces is the department may not use its enforcement authority to convert agency guidance documents into binding rules. Um, and I think where everybody went first was reasonable and necessary. And um, the fact that that was being defined by the government um, using sub-regulatory documentation. You know, it's interesting, Mike, because on this memorandum came out, I mean, it's, I think it's a direct response, and there's been a, a leak of private emails between DOJ and a prominent defense attorney, and I'm actually discussing kind of the use of what we call sub-regulatory guidance, which does not have the force and effect of law. For instance, it's either a statute or a regulation, and that has that is law, but then the guidance issued by the agency, either through... Uh, state operations manual or some other Medicare benefit policy or some, you know, NDA or coverage discrimination or even something from a contractor is often used to bootstrap as evidence of falsity in these, in these FCA cases. I think it's still relevant, Mike, to consider that it could be used as knowledge of what they, at least the government's position is, but I don't think you can use it to prove falsity. And the big issue is that in the advisory opinion process, I mean, those are binding on the requesters only, but everybody else in the industry, when you're structuring transactions for fraud and abuse concerns, for the anti-kickback statute or Stark law or state law, looks to those as interpretive and kind of binding guidance. And now, rather than the FCA in these investigations, whether whistleblowers or the Department of Justice bringing these cases, or even the states, you know, I think is really going to be hamstrung and relying on advisory opinions as kind of the quote the law, so to speak, and it has historically, especially in these kickback and start cases. Right. I mean, so in cases where, you know, you have a defendant who's provided care that's so substandard, the government says, and such a departure from uh, the industry standard, I mean, wouldn't the, like in um, this case cited here, Polikoff, um, you know, the, they would, the government would call an expert who would cite to the American Heart Association or or to, to illustrate the standard of care. 
but it's, it's right. different when you're you're giving it basically the force of law, and that's the distinguishing thing here. Absolutely, because if there's an increase, as we pointed out on the run of the original slides in this presentation, Department of Justice no longer shies away from medical necessity cases and is increasingly bringing them, whether it's kind of home health, DME, whether the medical necessity becomes an issue, especially under the False Claims Act. And, and I do think that you're absolutely correct. I mean, this use of sub-regulatory guidance or instructions is something that this administration seems to be shying away from. And that's what was signaled, I believe, back in the fall. And now we're seeing the fruits of that in the memorandum. So, but Mike, why don't we talk a little bit about just briefly resources, information, and I can, you know, go from there. Right. So actually, you know, you could also title this slide sub-regulatory uh, regulation. Um, <laughs> That's true. Because it, it, cause it, you know, but at the same time, while, okay, they're, they, uh, the government um, isn't going to use some of the sub-regulatory guidance in the way they have in the past, um, these are all very useful, you know, uh, to help your compliance program. Um, and advisory opinions are great. They're very specific. Um, but there is a, there's a ton of, um, sub-regulatory guides that you can find in these resources that, um, is very helpful for preempting any government, uh, intervention. In other words, when you want to, uh, conduct internal audits or, um, boost your compliance program. Absolutely, Mike. I think, you know, the problem is this, I and mean, these are very useful guidance to avoid getting yourself in a situation where you actually have to use the brand guidance in the Granston Memorandum right. to defend yourself right. on a false claim act. You'd rather avoid that altogether. So this is the barometer of it. And, you know, the, the prime example, I think, was several years ago when one of the Medicare contractors issued a guidance of their interpretation of what is homebound for home health services, which was vigorously fought by the industry. And because they amalgamated certain things in the uh, particular you know, industry guidance issued out there, the Medicare benefit policy. And so and that was a huge issue and continues to be an issue today. But you're right. These are just examples, again, you know, press releases especially as well. Why don't we talk about government agencies? And obviously, uh, Mike, I don't think we can just go through this quickly, that Department of Justice is, essentially has civil and criminal branches. Consumer Protection Branch addresses food, drug, cosmetic cases exclusively. Those can be handled in the regions. And I know, Mike, you handled a few when you were an AUSA, but you really got dedicated prosecutors, both civil and criminal, to handle health care cases, and now in some districts, opioid cases as well. But the FBI is really, and the DEA have really become kind of uh, preeminent in these types of cases, given what the trends we're seeing. But the last point is the public-private. Uh, now, special investigative units often are staff of former law enforcement officials, especially FBI, and the FBI has exclusive jurisdiction to address insurance fraud uh, and various commercial payers. And so the payers have been presenting cases to the Department of Justice to bring. And I think a lot of people believe that only you know medic federally funded cases can be brought in civil criminal cases by uh, the Department of Justice, but that's true for the False Claims Act, but in criminal settings, it can bring purely commercial cases. And in fact, there's a, a host of cases around the country now where they're using state commercial bribery cases and federal criminal cases. Let's go to the other enforcement players, Mike, if we could. Yep. Uh, and again, we mentioned the special investigative units, but this just is a laundry list of everyone who really has a role to play in assisting the Department of Justice in these False Claims Act and these criminal cases. I think obviously the last point to me is the most important because whistleblowers generate most of the cases under the False Claims Act and it has only increased over time. You're seeing about an average of 700 per year and the recoveries obviously can be tens of millions of dollars to them or hundreds of millions of dollars to them, but also billions of dollars back to the federal funds and the programs. Right. We had mentioned um, in an earlier slide the, the increased use of analytics by the government to uh, detect fraud. Um, do you feel like the analytics are used predominantly in the criminal setting? I do believe that, especially in the strike force, Mike. Uh, I think data analytics has become so sophisticated when I started as an AUSA and you know handling FCA cases back in 2003, 
there was just certain types of cases, especially hospice or home health, that had a benefit period rather than a distinct supplier or a Part B claim. Uh, hit for 1500 They were very difficult to bring and calculate supposed damages. And now the government relies on contractors and the analytics to really extract that data, and they have access to it almost immediately. So it has really revolutionized the ability of DOJ to bring more sophisticated cases, which is why I think they're touching into the medical necessity. Right. And, you know, with analytics, um, at least from the strike force perspective, it was, you know, it's been in front of you the whole time, but analytics will help you find these um, low hanging fruit um, with, you know, for example, uh, an ophthalmologist who's the number one prescriber of Oxycontin in the state, these sort of Absolutely. glaring, glaring um, problems and uh, that would never, you would never know until you, you put all this data together and, uh, and analyzed it. And you, right. the strike force was meant to bring these cases quickly. Right. And I also think that, you know, those cases have bleed over because they often are focused on practitioners or clinical personnel who have relationships with other entities. And so I think there is that bleed over effect where scrutiny happens. So you hey, OK, a lot of people say, well, we don't do that. We're not criminals. We don't do that. But some of the vendors or some of the people you may do business may have problems that you're not aware of. That's why I think it's important from a compliance perspective and trying to rebut allegations that you fail to knowingly monitor staff or marketing people to get as much attestations and much due diligence on the front end to be able to point to that when law enforcement knocks and say, hey, we did everything we possibly could to rebut the presumption that under the False Claims Act, you knowingly, you knew or should have known, which is defined as deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard, which is a very watered down standard. So, Mike, why don't we talk? Tell us a little. Go ahead. Yeah, let's continue on to sources of investigative cases yeah. is something we've sort of already touched on. Um, right. We really we just discussed data mining. So let's look at the common risk areas. Um, so I think yeah. one one I want one thing I want to talk to you about is retention of overpayments um, because I know that's something that when you talk about compliance. Um, it can't just be handled by the general counsel and chief compliance officers. That sort of relationship can be good um, to detect, but you have to do the work um, of figuring out, well, how much is the overpayment? And you have to involve a team of people at your organization. Um, so I think that's a just a practical challenge of retention of overpayments. That's true. I mean, another thing under the False Claims Act, Mike, under the recent, well, I mean, not so recent legislation, but under the Affordable Care Act and the FARA statute from, I guess, 08, you know, now a knowing retention of an overpayment is actual violation of the False Claims Act. So whereas before it was questionable whether that could trigger civil or criminal liability, now it's expressly stated that failure to make a repayment as far as a timely manner within 60 days, at least for Medicare and Medicaid claims, uh, is a violation of the False Claims Act. And there's nothing easier for the DOJ or whistleblower to prove than you knew there's a problem and you failed to make the repayment. So that internal analysis, whether through counsel or not, is so critical now and so important. So one of the things we tell clients and providers is that if you think there's an issue, you know, reach up and lift it up to your compliance officers and, and advise them and just don't sit on it and let the time go by because it's a very strict standard and, and the time clock goes quickly. Right. And, and I think that um, you don't want to uh, worry about being off by a little bit. In, in other words, you have 60 days to... Um, to return the overpayment. And if you're coming up on the 60 days and there may be a little bit here or there um, that is in question, um, you need to make that overpayment and not have to try and make the case that, well, or the delay was reasonable or, um, right. at, least, or at least pay back ones you know for sure um, fall under this um, standard. And one of the things I've done, you know, it may be impossible in 60 days, we may have blown the 60 days, 
But, you know, even sending some correspondence to the contractor saying we've identified a problem, we're in the process of quantifying it, I think that goes a long way. So you can try and avoid the idea that, sure, you may have an overpayment, but it doesn't necessarily rise to a criminal or civil violation. And I do, and I've seen other people and clients who have been sued under the False Claims Act, you know, for that reason. Well, you knew there was a problem. You failed to do it in a timely manner, and then a whistleblower filed a suit in the interim. And then instead of just simply making a check or repayment, then they're under the multiplier of the False Claims Act and the potential penalties. Exactly. If you if you for sure identified an amount that needs to be repaid, and you're bumping up against 60 days, pay that amount at least. Um, and then you're right. Correspond with um, with whomever you're making the repayment to. Right. And and uh, Mike, I think the risk areas continue. I think this is very straightforward, and I think the audience can read this. But I do believe that you know any physician-owned entities present a risk to an organization uh, just because there seems to be the perception that if I don't take federal funds, I'm okay. But we're seeing that's not the case because federal criminal law is now being applied to federalized state commercial bribery statutes to kind of so it's not in any kickback statute or stark issue per se, but it's still kind of in a financial, you know, bribery or conflict issue. But the rest of them I think are relatively straightforward. But we continue to see and I've been doing this for twenty years, Mike, medical directorships, kind of practice acquisitions, fair market value is critical when evaluating and structuring these transactions. Exactly. Um, you know, and especially practice acquisition, um, people are fighting for the last scraps of independent practice groups these days. Um, and um, medical directorships, for sure. Um, a lot of times a medical director can have the keys to um, hold the key to referrals. And that's an area where you need to be very careful. Right, especially with increased competition among the providers, like a state like Texas, which is not a certificate of need state, for instance. Right. There yep. are hospitals and clinics on every corner, and there's fierce competition for those referrals. And then you start to see, hey, practice, and then you know, factoring as fair market value goodwill, which the jury seems to be out on. But it's a very, you know, kind of tough dynamic, which is I think getting an independent evaluator. To, to provide, you know, kind of a blanket against the allegations of illegal inducements, et cetera. But, Mike, going to government investigations, I mean, in your experience, you know, obviously these are all different types of things, but uh, we talked about key tans, but I really think the bread and butter is the is the subpoenas, uh, and, and what type of subpoena you get dictates what type of investigation you're under, potentially. Is that right? That's true. Um, with getting a grand jury subpoena, I think being um, the potential has the potential for the worst case scenario. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the case, but um, that's you're thinking criminal. Um, but getting a subpoena um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're the focus of an investigation. Um, right. I I mean, I think that's incumbent on, you know, if you are a recipient of a subpoena increasing under the False Claims Act, we're seeing the use of CIDs recently, not, not recently now, but the legislation allowed the delegation for the local U.S. attorneys to actually handle CIDs. And, and I think that's now the preferred, which can compel testimony under oath, interrogatories, and also production of documents. And I'm seeing in my practice, that's almost become, you never see an inspector general or an AID subpoena as much anymore. You only see CIDs, especially in the False Claims Act world. So you sort of touched on it, but could you explain just a little bit more specifically what CIDs are? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm using the nomenclature all in healthcare here. So it's a civil investigative demand, and specifically under the False Claims Act statute, it authorizes the Attorney General essentially to issue a civil subpoena compelling testimony or documents or compelling answers under oath. And so while the grand jury can compel testimony that's purely in a criminal case, now specifically under the False Claims Act, whether they're accused of a violation or you're simply a witness, they can get that testimony under oath becomes very powerful. In a lot of ways, I think it's streamlined the way these cases are brought because the knock historically has been for the most time that these cases go under seal for years and years and years and years. And it's essentially a tantamount to a violation of due process. So the courts are really ratcheting down on 
how long the Department of Justice has to investigate these cases under seal. So they'll issue these CIDs right away and ask for documents within 30 days, which is a very short time frame, but it really kind of gets the the case moving and up and running. So from a defense perspective, it's a kind of a scrambling to get to know a new client or an existing client and from an IT and the preservation of issues, et cetera. Let's look at the next level, which is what uh, the government is going to do with that information. And we'll go through this very quickly. Um, I think really the second to last bullet point, knowledge and intent evidence is what can make or break a case. Um, I think you probably agree with that, John. Absolutely. I mean, it all comes down to it. You're going to have a claim. You're going to have a contract of some sort. You're going to have payments, you know, and I think, you know, whether they're overtly or, you know, indirectly false or fraudulent becomes more material now under Escobar, which is a Supreme Court decision now being interpreted by the courts, you know, whether it's the decision, you know, to make payment or the alleged fraud was a material falsity in the determination to make, you know, payment. It used to be that the government could just say, had I known it was procured by X, I would not have paid that. And then that kind of got you over the hurdle. Now the courts are really stressing, okay, is this alleged deficiency fraudulent or is it really material to decision make payment? And I think there's sweeping cases and there's circuit opinions all over the place. And it's really kind of, we'll see this issue, I think, before the Supreme Court, especially in the next probably two or three years again, as you know, discrepancies among the circuits continue. But you're right. I mean, the one thing, too, also is that we haven't touched on it, really, because it's a little beyond this presentation, but the civil, criminal, administrative, and then even a state potential or licensure. I mean, the government has so many different ways to proceed. They can do it at the same time or sequentially, et cetera. And so when you're representing an individual in an FCA case, I just don't think you can assume Right, Mike, that it's just a civil case, but there's potential other liabilities out there, let alone even potentially private litigation, which could commence immediately and then be used as a conduit to provide information to the government. Right, exactly. You touched on a good one, which is licensure. Um, uh, you may have, you, you know, we may avoid some of the um, the other enforcement apparatuses that we talked about, but if your license is in jeopardy, you might as well you might as well have paid back money or I think you might would rather you pay back money. Um, so there are a lot of, uh, you know, when you would know this, um, when you have a, a client who is facing, um, these subpoenas, um, and you know that the government is gathering all this information sort of behind the scenes, um, they have to be protected on multiple fronts. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that results in a lot of potential ethical issues from the individuals going back to the AIDS memorandum. But also, I think clients just have to understand that when you're being kind of confronted on all ends, what's the focus of the defense? What's the, that I think you have to be clear when counseling clients, Mike, and you know, from your perspective too, what is the end game here? Obviously, I think most people say they don't want to go to jail. Okay, we understand that, but that has potential implications on the civil side or the licensure side. And then again, Private liability, especially if it has to do with medical necessities, becoming a huge issue. You know, when I was a prosecutor, I had people in civil discovery, publicly available documents. You know, if there was litigation involved, I would just drop a subpoena on the law firm and get a copy of the documents. Because there's no way that they, even though it's confidential or it's under a you know, confidentiality agreement, you know, government can ask for it. So I think that presented a lot of challenge for defendants. But you know, kind of going to the next one, Mike, on internal investigations 101, and this is essentially what you would do when faced with a FCA inquiry or a subpoena, you know, identify what the issues are, et cetera, but you would go through an internal investigation. But the key component is this, is the last point, the remedial measures. You know, maybe you, you get wind of an issue and you connect an internal investigation, Mike, I know you do that all the time with your facility, but you may not have an FCA case, but one may crop up, you know, a year or two later. And I think from your perspective, you know, the remedial measures you put in, repayment, disclosure, whatever it is, are critical to rebutting the allegations of knowledge under the False Claims Act. Yes, and also, um, so if, you know, retooling your compliance program, for example, um, can help you even if, you know, you're going to get in trouble. Um, if your response is 
consistent with a legitimate concern about compliance, um, then that's going to help you in negotiations with the government. Um, so you want to be the person who says, um, this is just, you know, the one time that the puck got to the goalie, but we have, we have a goalie. Um, and we have a, a system that is set up to, to detect fraud to, um, basically a robust compliance program. And if that turns out not to be the case, still, you should be taking those measures immediately so that you can at least say to the government, okay, we didn't have an effective compliance program, but now we do. And I think that's only going to help you. Component. Yeah, I mean, from either a criminal perspective or civil, having an effective and demonstratively effective compliance program by catching these problems really can go as, and it's directly in DOJ guidance and the United States Attorney's Manual, which is binding on DOJ into their own internal policies, but they're supposed to take that into account when assessing potential liability in, from enforcement actions. But Mike, talk to us a little bit about some of these common triggers. I mean, these are all relatively straightforward, but anything that kind of from your experience stands out as one of the most common issues that kind of to pay attention to? I don't know if it's it's common personally to me, but I think the departing employees um, issue is interesting because I know that there are people who uh, will try and or there have been cases where providers have made disgruntled employees sign confidentiality agreements, for example, uh, that would purport to prevent them from revealing any information about they learned while they were in the employment of a fraud uh, a fraudster. Um, that's not going to work. Um, but one thing you can do is do a real exit interview, and if um, and encourage honesty, and if and have a way of moving that moving some moving information from the interviewer to compliance. Um, similar, you know to a hotline call um, right? where you can, you know, someone tells you something and maybe they're a potential relator, but uh, best case scenario, it's a way for you to make your organization better and more compliant. Yeah. And I think just from a tactical perspective, I agree with that, Mike, it's just you lock in that person because you may know they may want to file something, whether it's employment related or under the false claims act, but you lock them in, you give them an opportunity to talk to anybody else. Did you say anything else? What'd you do? Okay, great. And then you take action on it. And if for some reason they say later on, I told them about the following, and you just produce that. No, you didn't because we conducted an exit interview and they never mentioned that. So how we were never put on notice of that. Otherwise, clearly we would have fixed that issue. But also I think that the parting issue employees, when they start to be contacted by law enforcement or you start to hear rumors circulating in the industry among competitors or former employees, whoever, it's a good indication something might be up and you may want to kind of hone in on that from a compliance perspective. Uh, Mike, let's talk a little bit about the next slide. I know we're kind of winding down on our time here, but any points that you have on preliminary assessment? Um, you got to get together the relevant individuals. Um, it's better to, uh, I mean, that's the first step, right? You want to assess, you know, what do we have here? Um, and kind of to your point of what to do with information, how to act upon information given to you by a departing employee, um, go out there and speak to people um, and have discussions with people and um, you got to get there as quickly as possible, but um, be as broad as possible to make sure you don't miss anything. Absolutely. I mean, and I'd also echo that, you know, this is a very fluid type of situation, responding to an investigation, things change. But in my experience, you talk to three or four people, you kind of get the gist of what needs to be done and you can identify those individuals. I think clearly when you get notice of an issue, you've got to preserve the evidence. We, uh, we talk right. about that and whole, how you go about doing that, litigation hold, et cetera. But I think that's critical, especially if you get a subpoena. But then we're talking about the investigative plan here, Mike. You know, I mean, I think that's relatively straightforward. We talk about the document preservation and collection because nothing uh, screams, you know, fraud to the government as if you can't keep 
information that they think you should have. And I know it's frustrating because not every organization is huge or a national company. It may not have a document retention plan or something to that effect. It may not have access of employees, you know, personal identifiers. But I think increasingly the DOJ is now talking about our subpoenas and our CIDs cover personal devices of your employees. And so you're really going to have to go out there potentially and get that information because a lot of the physicians, a lot of employees, marketing reps, et cetera, communicate by text. But trying to handle and get a marshal on information is extremely difficult because most of the time it's not around by the time you, you know, the subpoena comes two years later. Right. That's also in the malpractice world. Um, so you're right with, you know, bring your own devices. Um, the challenge for collecting this evidence um, is huge. Um, and we talked earlier about cost. The cost is also huge. Right. Um, I mean, just hiring a forensic person to go out there and image a bunch of phones. That's why I think it's critical to have a rapport with the regulator in question, whoever it is, to try and narrow that scope and just say, this is ridiculous. The sheer amount of information and cost. I mean, one of my last cases I handled when I was in AUSA was against a large national device manufacturer. And I asked for electronic information. I think the response was that literally will cost us $4 million based on what you're asking. And so my natural response, of course, Michael, is, well, you can just pay us the $4 million instead. We'll call it a day. But we'll anyhow, go away. Um, yeah, we'll go away. Yeah, exactly. But let's, let's talk briefly because I know we are winding down about interviews. And, Mike, when you're conducting these internally, are you present, in-house lawyer present? You, who do you like to have in the room, especially if it's an important witness? Um, it depends. Um, but a lot of times, no, um, outside, it's just outside counsel, it, but it, but it depends on, um, what the best, the subject of the investigation. Yeah. I think you'd agree though. You probably don't want any management personnel attending. Correct. Maybe no, just simply correct. an introduction. Cause correct. I think that has a chilling effect. And then, you know, the up John warning, which essentially is telling all employees, when you're conducting an internal investigation, hey, because everyone thinks you're their lawyer, right, Mike, especially internally. So yes. you've got to be clear and tell them that I'm not your lawyer. I represent the company. If you need your own lawyer, that's fine. But this is a confidential, privileged discussion. And you, even if you talk to anybody else, it doesn't waive it. And that's a standard up, John Warning. And I think it's important for individuals to get that. And I also think my personal practice is that if you know that person, is suspect or has done something improper when you're doing just an internal investigation. I don't like to interview them knowing that. I frankly think it's from more of an more of an ethics thing, just to say, I think you got trouble and you gotta have your own lawyer. Um, because I don't want to be accused of duping or uh providing, you know, kind of misrepresenting why I'm there and then having some judge frown upon it later when I try and introduce it as evidence. I don't know, Mike, what are your thoughts? I think that's a good practice um, because the the power relationship is going to be so unbalanced potentially. You know, well, certainly that's how it's going to be painted by that person's lawyer later down the road, um, without a doubt. That right. No amount of um, admonishments or or any admonishments you give will be called legalese by you know, by someone later down the road, it's probably best to make it make it much cleaner. Right. And especially if you know the issues are that raises some potential Fourth Amendment issues. Are you acting as an agent for the government and collecting this, especially if you are turning some of this information over? I think it's just best practice to you know make sure that you don't have that kind of that specter over your internal investigation. But Moving on to one of the last slides, and implementing corrective action. Mike, when you're handling this and you know there has an issue, it has to be resolved. I mean, who's the messenger you send, either to the government or internally or both? Um, so implementing correct, corrective action um, internally is you, you've got to identify the, I hate to use corporate speak, but the sort of change agent who's going to be able to um, not just implement, but monitor, because I think that's key. When you're talking about uh, corrective action, you can have the greatest plan in the world that the, you know, the best lawyers, the best compliance officers have concocted. 
But if the, the people who are actually dealing with um, relationships and patients and all this other stuff uh, every day, if they're not aware of the why or if they're not being monitored throughout, you know, past the implementation stage, then you might as well not have done it. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a great point because one of the things I've seen, you know, you communicate the corrective action, especially in light of a, you know, an FCA case, for instance, and a resolution. Okay, and going forward, we're going to do the following, uh, whether you have a corporate integrity agreement attached to it or not, and then failing to follow up and making sure that you know, you know, operations or even compliance is doing what they need to do because that's just a hallmark of someone to the government anyhow that just doesn't get it and is a recidivist or doesn't care, which I think is devastating to try and determine, especially if there's a subsequent investigation or some spinoff or litigation, et cetera. All right. The last slide here. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, the last slide, you know, I think we can, that's one you can just read. Um, Certainly the first thing you have to do is fix the problem. Remember, you want to be able to, um, present a story to the government about all the things that you did um, that were good and beneficial af- after you identified um, the issue. Um, I think then you got to figure out who to disclose yeah. that. Yeah, I think that's critical, and the protocols are there, and there's a variety of ways to go about it. But and this talks about the 60-day known retention overpayment, otherwise it turns into FCA violation. But I really think there are some people out there who still continue to believe that, hey, or think if I change it now, I'll either fix it going forward, which doesn't work, as we just talked about, or if I change it, that's going to be evidence that I'm guilty of something. And I just think that's, frankly, a ludicrous position because you have to stop the wrongful conduct. It shows effective compliance. It shows you're willing to do it. And you can do it in a manner like, hey, I disagree with you, government. And I don't think there's an issue here, but just to appease you and out of abundance of caution, we're going to stop coding it that way. We're going to stop doing it that way. We're going to put this type of pressure or this type of policies in place just during the pendency of this investigation, you know, and whether you're right or wrong, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So you don't think we're continuing to do something like an ongoing fraud or something like that. I think that's critical to message as appropriate, but it also, frankly, from a practical perspective, Mike, doesn't it just stop the flow of damages too. So you're not increasing the potential loss. Yeah, your your risk for continuing with a practice you know to be impermissible is off the charts and grows every day. You gotta stop stop at some point. Um and that's the way you do it. So you stop the action, stop the bleeding, and address next steps. Yeah, and I think the rules of evidence address that. Like, you know, remedial measures can't be used as evidence of impropriety. You know, it's like the classic scenario when a car manufacturer has a problem and then they fix it. And then the, the, essentially the evidence that they fixed the problem, you know, the engine, the seatbelt, whatever, can be used that there was a problem and they knew about it. So I think there's protections there as well. But, Mike, I think we're at the end of the presentation, so I do appreciate the audience sticking with us and, and listening and hope they found value here. But we're ready to answer any questions that are out there. Hi, uh, it's Catherine again. Um, we did have a few questions come in, and um, maybe while we have the questions, uh, can we have your, uh, your yeah, um, the slide with your contact information? Thanks. Okay, so one of the questions that we had was, um, what are the best practices for dealing with overpayments? Well, I think that's something that we um, we hit on with that last conversation. I think the the key, maybe the key thing that we did not really, I guess, Sean, spend a lot of time on is who you disclose to, which is something that probably should be best left to um, outside counsel maybe, uh, depending on the complexity of the issue. Um, and the amount of money, you know, there are times when the, the, the answer is write a check to the MAC. Um, there are times when the answer is OIG. Right. I think it depends on the nature of the violation. If it's sterling stark, you get a CMS. If it's a kickback or FCA, do you want to disclose it? You can try the MAC if you think there's no intentional or knowing conduct and simply a mistake. Uh, knowing that, in my experience, though, Mike, that if it's a significant amount of money, the MAC or the contractor is simply going to afford it. 
to the OIG and to the fraud contractor anyhow that he pick. So, but I mean, and sometimes it's a matter of picking up the phone and calling directly to the local U.S. Attorney's office and seeing if there's a way to resolve it. Uh, and I used to feel those calls all the time, especially if it's simply an overpayment case. But and also there are whole presentations on the timing mechanics of how to make the appropriate disclosure, how many years you go back, how many programs. I mean, frankly, from a defense perspective, you're trying to get the most narrow possible uh, repayment or look back period. I think the government has promulgated a draft rule. I don't know if it's final yet, Mike, but you know, they want to look at you know, six, 10 years, but I think it's six years. That's standard FCA kind of statute of limitations is six years, absent something compelling. Right. Okay, good. Um, let's see, we had another question. Um, do you think there's going to be any changes to Stark Law here in uh, 2018? Mike, what have you been hearing? Um, I'm biased because I want that. Um, and maybe I want it to be true. And that's clouding my judgment. Um, I think the the time-honored argument from the provider side, the defense side, has always been we have the anti-kickback statute, um, and Stark over time has become and and really has always been, but now especially very complicated. Uh, and because it's strict liability, you don't really have much to say. Um, in the way of we didn't, you know, this is totally unintentional. You're stuck with the result. Um, I, and I would agree. I think, you know, with this administration, if there's ever a chance that Stark will be peeled back or modified in some capacity, or at least some regulatory relief, uh, it's now in the next year or so. But, you know, it's kind of become so ingrained and entrenched. You know, how do you really effectively do that? I think maybe some additional we'll get some notice and comments and there may be some new exceptions that kind of, or revisions to, cause I really, I mean, most of them are straightforward, but you get very complicated when you talk about gain sharing or the definition of group practice or the revenue sharing arrangements when you're talking about structuring transactions and, you know, how to divide up pro rata, et cetera, those revenues. I think that's really the, like some of the more complicated stuff. And I remember being, when I was in AUSA, people would raise these, esoteric start questions. I think most of those are really beyond the purview of what DOJ or even CMS is going to look into. I think they're looking at the basics. Hey, these are medical directorships or the, the written and lease agreements. And it really comes down to fair market value. Is it in writing? Is it commercially reasonable? And I think those are really, if it's not those, then DOJ, CMS, OIG, take a look-see. But if it's some complicated transaction as to who's getting what, Structurally, I just don't think they have the wherewithal or the willingness to look into those. There are enough simple ones out there to not have to delve into the, you know, potentially highly formal legal or formalistic legal argument you'd have to to make to to prosecute it. Absolutely, because you've got a vice account, so you've got good faith reliance. You've got, you know, I know DOJ is really kind of coming to the jury on these so-called swapping and carve-out arrangements, but even those are very complex and are not straightforward. And I think there's enough, as you point out, low-hanging fruit out there, as we see from every national roundup, you know, criminally, that they don't have to focus on those esoteric issues. Good. Um, okay, so we had a third question, and it was, how do Medicare shared savings programs affect compliance? Well, there's an area where, um, you know, the gain sharing is is um, maybe something that would drop out of future regulations because I think that in order to implement <clears throat> these shared savings programs and some of the more innovative um, sort of patient care models, they're going to have to <clears throat> modulate the enforcement of um, Gain sharing and some other uh, prohibitions. Right, I think gain sharing has been, you know, back, you know, now almost 18 years ago it was kind of when it was new, it was very kind of common. And I think with the Affordable Care Act and some of these innovative models for collaboration, you see kind of resurgence, especially under ACOs. But 
kind of clinically integrated models and networks, I think, you know, there's waivers for certain issues that potentially could be problematic. When we're talking about shared savings, I mean, the goal is to provide higher quality in a more clinically set it. And I have not seen any enforcement cases on shared savings stuff. I mean, unless there's like a meaningful use certification of some sort, whether it's express fraud, they just didn't use it for the funds. I think the shared savings are going to be, at least for the time being, kind of off the table from an enforcement perspective. That's just my personal thoughts. Right. I agree. Okay, very good. Well, I uh, really enjoyed your your webinar here, and I know that our audience um, audience really, really enjoyed it as well. So thank you so much, both of you. And uh, did you have any other any other thoughts at all or, or anything, any final parting thoughts? No, just Catherine, thank you for inviting us to give this presentation today, and I hope the audience found it useful. And our information, Mike and I, are there. If you have any follow-up questions, then feel free to reach out to us. Uh, via email or phone, uh, social media, et cetera, whatever. But do appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Thank you. Right. Well, yes, yes. Thank you, Catherine. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, both of you, so much. And um, audience, please use the contact information on the screen for any questions. And um, uh, also, if you have any other questions, uh, feel free to send them to us, and we'll forward them on to um, Mike and Sean. And uh, you can also register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution um, on our website, which is firsthcc.com, or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you so much again, and thank you for joining us. Appreciate it.